My name is Maurice. I'm an alcoholic, recovering through the grace of God and this fellowship. It is impossible for me to pass on to you what it's like <laughs> being here. You know, four years ago, I sat right over there in the first or second row with six months of sobriety under my belt and two very unfortunate encounters with Alcoholics Anonymous before that. And I sat there that night and I, I listened to the little lady who led. She was a powerful, dynamic speaker. Dirk was her name. And she gave to me that night something of what this thing is all about. Because when she finished, I thought, this is it. This, this was the frosting on the cheek that had been placed before me. You know, we use the, we use the term miracle very loosely in AA. We, we refer to each other as miracles. We are, there's no doubt about that, but we refer to each other as miracles. I think it's a miracle that I'm standing up here tonight. You know, today, what a day this has been. Last night, I listened to my wife, for the first time, make an Al-Anon lady. But I'm here. <laughs> it's kind of like looking in a mirror backwards. You hear your story through her reaction to it, and you think, my God. I was glad she threw in one line. She said, well, at least he came home and helped me do the washing from time to time. That was the beginning of a great weekend for me. And then, of course, this morning at 9 o'clock, I, I heard Ed M. And that's the real beginning of a day like this. And then the play this afternoon, which was an additional fillet. But before that, my wife and I sneaked away. And we went to Ardmore Avenue. And we stood outside of Dr. Bob's old home. And I've never been inside that home, but in my mind's eye, I, I could see that kitchen where so many cups of coffee must have been poured. Think of the meetings that took place between Dr. Bob and Bill, Bill Dodds, all the people, the, the early people, the people who, who made it possible for us to be here tonight. It was all there as we, as we stood outside that house on Ardmore. And then we went over to Mount Peace Cemetery. And we visited Dr. Bob's grave. And we stood and we thought, what if this man were not lying here with the graces which surely Almighty God must have attended to him? Where would we be today? And of course, when you do these things, through your mind goes the many times that, that you've passed the gatehouse where that encounter first took place. And you think of King's School, that group which I have come to know and love so much in these last three and a half years. What a day this is. What a day. This, you may, you may, you may take this story home with you. I saw a miracle tonight. He stood and he walked. He talked. And he was sober. Through the grace of God and this fellowship. You know, you hear an awful lot about resentments when you come into this fellowship. I, I, I have a terrible time with the resentments. 
I had to have a sponsor, of course, a, a very wise guy who had to tell me what a, what a, what a, uh, what a, what it was, this resentment that was inside of me and what it was doing to me because I didn't really understand about resentment. But through his help, I began to get rid of them and I began to find out something about what they were. And I understand now why when our vice president comes to Cleveland as he is tonight and he's making a speech, as a newsman, I think of what's happening up there and I, I have to work on all of the turmoil that goes on inside of me. I have a terrible time. And I can remember so many times when I, when I first learned about this fellowship. And we would stand at the end. And the Lord's Prayer would be said. And I, I'm a convert to my, to my religion. And we don't put the, the end on the Lord's Prayer. We didn't at that time. And people would stand there and they would, they would continue the Lord's Prayer over and above what had been written, you see, or what had been given to us. And they'd say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And I'd shut my mouth tight and think to myself, you know, where are they going anyway? What are they doing? And you know, at Mass a couple of months ago, we came to the Lord's Prayer, and my kids and my wife and I are all standing in the front row, and what do I do? I embarrass them. I'm saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power. I thank God, Father, that is a friend of mine, because he looked over and smiled and said, that's all right, Stuart. We know why you're here. So, yeah, I'm beginning, I'm beginning to find out about this thing and how it works. Speaking of resentments, my resentments go back a long, long way. I, I've begun to find out something about them. Uh, I, I come from a family which was a split family. I, my mother and father were divorced when I was very young. I never really knew my father, as a matter of fact. I met him only once as an adult. And this was in the, the Depression, the post-Depression years, and there was very little money. My mother was not a skilled woman. And we lived many of those years on welfare. And as a kid, how I hated that. How I, how I hated being the kid in school that walked down the hall with the welfare clothes on because I could spot them every time they walked down the hall. I knew exactly what was, you know, what was with this kid because I was wearing the same thing. Now I used to hate the trips to the welfare office to pick up that weekly stipend of dried beans and a few things like that that were unpalatable at best. And how I used to wish fervently that there was a man in the house, someone that I could sit down and talk with, but there wasn't. And I hated it. I hated every bit of it. And it wasn't until years later that I finally figured out, maybe this, maybe, this was one of the reasons that I had such a terrible time in accepting the tenets of this fellowship. Those, those resentments followed me so long. I remember so well, I was about 16 years old. I was on a choir trip and we went to St. Louis. And I, I, sat, I think it's the Brown Hotel, I'm not sure. But I, I sat in the bar and I, I said to the bartender, I was by myself, I, I said, may I order a Tom Collins? Can you imagine saying, may I order a Tom Collins? But I did. It was the only drink that I ever heard of, I'm sure. And I drank that drink. And it was lovely. It, it was beautiful. It was the first real time that I had bought a drink at a bar with money that I had earned myself. And there were all kinds of good feelings that happened to me at that moment. I liked the taste. I liked the feeling. I liked what it did for me. And I can remember thinking, I'm going to do this as often as I like, whenever I like, and as often as I like, no matter where it is. 
And it's one of the few promises that I ever kept to myself. One of the very few. A couple of years later, I received a scholarship to a summer theater in Massachusetts. And I had already formed the, uh, the early morning drink habit. It always seemed logical to me to take a drink in the morning. If you hurt, there was only one way to, you know, say, save it. Just take a drink. This was the answer. It was very logical to me. And I can understand why people do it today. It's, uh, just, you know, just the way you do things. If you've got cancer, you're calling a doctor. If you've got a hangover, you're calling booze. But I had gotten drunk this morning. We were to play a matinee performance that day, and 2.30 came, curtain time, and that curtain went up, and I was loaded. Yeah. Ooh, way out of this world. I couldn't remember my lines. I couldn't remember anything of what was happening to me. And when it was all over, and you can imagine what a shambles that performance was like, when it was all over, the director took me off to one side and he said, look at you, Stuart. You're 18 years old, you're drunk, and you tell me you want to be an actor. What are you trying to do to yourself? And I didn't have an answer for him. But I resented his asking me that question because it was my life. And I was going to do with it just exactly what I wanted to do with it. And that was get drunk whenever I liked and as often as I liked. And then backstage at a, at a theater in New York, we just closed on a show called The Young American. There was a party backstage. And I heard something that night which was to become part of my life. A young actor stood on stage and began to recite a, a long poem. And, of course, I was half in a bag, but he did this thing so well that I began to listen very, very closely. And I remember the words so well. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth and ways of my own mind. He was reciting Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven, the story of a, of a man running from his God, afraid to, to take the things which are offered to him by his God, because if he does... He can have nothing in this world. And so he runs and runs. And I thought as I listened, good Lord, this, this, the man who wrote this thing could have been writing about me because this, this is the way I think. This is the way I feel. And then later that night, I found out that Francis Thompson, who of course is dead now, but, but he was also a drunk, an adult addict. And I thought Francis Thompson and Murray Stewart are one and the same person. We think the same. We live the same. And just like the man in that poem, I ran. I ran from coast to coast. You see, I never liked anything about myself as I began to get older. I, I didn't care for me. I, I didn't care for the things I did. I didn't care for the way I lived. And there was a solution to that as far as I was concerned, and that was to move to another part of the country. And so I jumped from New York to California, from California to Dallas, to Chicago, to Detroit, you name it, I would go there. And very carefully, I always took the things that I didn't like about Murray Stewart, and I'd put them away, and I'd leave them. It was the funniest thing. I'd get to New York or Hollywood, and they were all there, waiting for me, all over again. I could never quite leave them behind. And the booze was the big thing that I was trying to lose even then, because I drank differently from the way my friends drank. I was always the first one to start. I was always the last one to stop. And I knew there was something wrong. And I suppose it was this knowledge that there was something different about my reading which led me to read that Saturday evening post article, the one that told the story of Alcoholics Anonymous so well and the, 
the miracles that it had wrought, that it had brought into being, and to read the pieces of literature that occasionally came through my hands. So I became familiar with the fact that there was something called Alcoholics Anonymous, and that it offered and held out hope for the practicing alcoholic. But it was always there for someone else. Not for me, for someone else. And so it was that I, I came to a small town out in the Midwest. I've been living in New York, and a friend of mine wrote and said, Murray, you tell me you're sick and tired of New York, you want to get out of there. You're sick and tired of the theater, you're sick and tired of radio. Why don't you come out to Sioux Falls? You can have a job as a newsman out here on one of the local radio stations, and to keep your hand in the theater, you can direct the community theater at night. And I said, fine, that sounds great. It sounds fine, and I promised myself I'll go out there and stay for a year. Because surely out there, I will learn to live differently in that small town. Well, that was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made, because it was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that I really learned how to drink. There wasn't a great deal else to do. And it was there that I learned about all the little cold goodies. Benzedrine, dexedrine, later the tranquilizers, and the barbiturates. And there was one period a little later when I got on something called psychic energizers. And I liked being on psychic energizers because it sounded so much better than saying I just popped a couple of bennies. But this is, this is the way I live. With booze the first thing in the morning and a couple of bennies to get me going. It was the only way to live. I, I can remember our farm director saying to me at the radio station one day, Murray, do you have a drink every day? I said, well, of course. You know, who doesn't? But, you know, as you come in and you begin to look back over some of the things that you did and some of the things you thought, you begin to realize that uh, any difficulty you may have in accepting the second step of this fellowship is uh, probably just a little bit oddball. I can remember so well. I, I was a bachelor. I was not married. I was living in an apartment by myself. And a friend of mine owned a liquor store. As a matter of fact, I had a lot of friends who owned liquor stores. I had a lot of friends who owned bars. They were about my only friends. But I met Pat on the street one day, and he said, Murray, why don't you drop in? He said, I'm having a sale. Well, anything off a, a quart of booze sounded good to me, so I went down to see Pat, and we visited for a while. I don't know how much he was knocking off the place. I suppose it was 5% or something like that. But I spotted a case of Bat 69. I said, Pat, I'll take it. And thought, you know, what a great economic quiz I was because I had saved five bucks. And then as I was leaving the store, I spotted a case of Gilby's gin in the coast, and I said, I think I'll take that, too. And so I called a cab, and we took the, the booze up to my apartment, and I took the bottles out and placed them on a long table, which I had, all the bottles, one by one. And I sat down, and I had a drink, and I looked at these things. I thought, gee, they're mine. Every one of those bottles is mine. And I'm going to drink every drop. And I did, I did. I, I was not very charitable when it came to... I wasn't one of these guys who walked in a bar and said, set him up. I was the kind of a guy who drank his own booze and prayed someone else would come along and buy him a quick one. I was the kind of a guy who went around after a party and finished the drink. So nothing would go to waste. And, of course, when I had made such a great economic saving as this, I wasn't about to pass it on to another consumer. 
crazy things. You know, I thought to myself, Steve, you have arrived. This is it, buddy. You have bought two cases of booze. They're all yours, and you're going to enjoy every bit of it yourself. And I did. Crazy? I was nuttier than a fruitcake. And not conscious of it. I found absolutely nothing wrong in the way that I thought. Absolutely nothing. Because it was in that town that I met the woman who was to be my wife. If you were at the Friday night Al-Anon meeting, you know something about what happened. But I'll give you my side of the story tonight. Is that okay? I'll tell you the real story. See, I met Jan through a drunken automobile accident which her sister had had with her husband. And the first night that Jan was there, my wife was a dietitian, the first night she was there to help Marsha for the few weeks that she was first out of the hospital. I, I took Jan out and about four o'clock in the morning, both of us are loaded and I, I kind of looked at her cockeyed, I suppose. I was usually cockeyed about that point. And said, you know, you're the only woman I have ever met that I could marry. And she said, well, what are you going to do about it? And a short time later, less than a year later, we were married. And it was a great marriage. It was a great marriage. We both loved to drink. There was one basic difference, however. My wife was worried about the amount that I drank. And later, in our marriage, she saw what was happening to me, and she stopped drinking. She was not an alcoholic, I was. But, you know, speaking of screwy standards and the way your mind works, we used to meet at a, at a place called the Parade Room at the Cataract Hotel in Sioux Falls after drink, or after work. Jan would join me after I got off the air, and she'd gotten off her job at the hospital, and We'd always have two or three double vodka martinis or something of the sort and go on home. And Jan met me there one night to help celebrate my birthday, which I had been doing a pretty good job of all day anyway. But she came in and she sat down and Bob the bartender, who was another one of my, my uh, liquor-associated friends, God gave me the greatest birthday present in the world that I have ever received. It was a fishbowl filled with vodka martinis. I was deeply touched. And I thought to myself, never has any man been so richly blessed by such friends. Here is a buddy. Yeah, I drank every drop of it. Screw. I was not well. I was not well. But it was a good marriage. We, we played together. We loved together. And... We had a thing going which it seemed to me was almost beyond belief in our relationship because not only were we lovers, we were friends. And this is a most unusual situation, at least this has been my experience. And something happened a little less than a year after we were married. Our first child was born, Christopher Zach. And I can remember looking at that, that beautiful boy through the the windows of the nursery. Thinking to myself, never has there been such a man-child before. Never. I thought, all of the things that I have done wrong, all of the things that I have not been, all of the good things that I had hoped for, I will see to it that this child has these things. And I made that promise and that vow 
And later, of course, I began to make elaborate plans for his education, plans for his future. And I discussed these things very carefully with my financial advisors, my bartenders. I never did anything about it, of course. These were alcoholic dreams. When he was two and a half years old, we found that Christopher had a fatal illness and would, barring a miracle, be taken from it. And it was a... It was a day of reckoning. The day that news was given to us that this child had a plastic anemia. And I think I literally shook my fist at this God to which I had paid lip service for many a year and said, you're not going to take this boy from me. You will not do this to me. I will not permit it. And so we began what they told us would be futile, would be hopeless. We began the search for the cure which did not exist. And we put Christopher upon the advice of the physicians, the specialists. We put him upon experimental drugs which began to twist and bloat this beautiful child into something which God had never intended him to be. And we watched him undergo transfusion after transfusion and surgery. I remember before the removal of his spleen, they said there was perhaps a chance that this might mean a remission. I attempted to make a bargain with this God of mine. The bargain was this. Let Christopher live. Let him live, God, and I'll never drink again. You see, it was the only thing I had to offer my God was my booze in exchange for my son's life. And he lived. And six weeks later, I was drunk. The worst six weeks I had ever lived through. Every nerve of my body screaming for relief. I remember so well, shortly before his death, I was with him late at night in a hospital room. We never left him unless it was absolutely necessary. Left him only to sleep. We were there at all other times my wife and I sharing, splitting the ship. And he'd had surgery again, and the gases had built within his body so that his heartbeat was erratic. And the doctors had said, unless we're able to relieve the gases which had built up within his body, he will surely die, because his heart will simply pound itself out. And I was with him, and it was late at night, and he was conscious, but he was in a good deal of pain. And suddenly I remember the story of a, of a little saint who once, many, many years ago, had pulled a bone out of, a, out of the throat of a child. And in later years, the church had canonized this man and, and called him St. Blaise, the patron saint of throat. And that night, the story came to my mind, and I told Christopher about it, and I said, I'm sure if you'll ask St. Blaise for help, that he will help you. And in that wonderful little voice of his, he repeated my words. Please, St. Blaise, help me. And as he did, he coughed. And that cough was some sort of a, a triggering mechanism that somehow, miraculously, began to relieve the gases in his body, and it was, it was a visible thing. You could see it happen. How his heartbeat began to return to normal. And suddenly this child that had been dying and was in so much pain was no longer dying. He was a, he was a living, viable thing. And I had no thought at the time of getting down on my knees and thanking this God of mine. I had no thought of that. All I could think of was summoning the doctors and the nurses and saying, See, see, he's going to live. 
And then a few days later, he died. And I was betrayed by this God. And when we buried him, we buried the better part of me with him. And my wife and I mourned our loss, not together, but separately. She went her way, and I went mine. She turned more and more to her God, I turned more and more to mine, the bottle and the pill. And these were the days of the days of being lost, of not knowing what was happening, where I was going, what I was doing. All of my thoughts dominated by Christopher's death, and the thought that I would let... These were the days when I would come home and I would hear his footstep on the stairs. These are the days when I'd go down into the basement and turn and expect to see him on the staircase coming down. Because he had to be there. These were the days when I would walk my oldest daughter, who was not quite two, around the block, and we'd see Christopher riding a bicycle across the street. And there was only one way to convince me that he was dead, and that was to go home and get drunk again. And my wife and I did not know each other. There was no love in our home. There was nothing. There was only the dominating God of booze. And so it was after too many months, too much booze, too many pills, and doing something which I still feel shame for today, going into bars and telling strangers my sad stories, and getting drinks in return because they felt sorry for me, caging drinks on my son's death. So it was after too many months of this that I asked for help and was taken to my first day in. You know, I have begun to grow up in Cleveland AA and Akron AA. Life began for us here, but this was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And of course we practiced the same program throughout the world. The 12 steps remain a constant. But there are local variations. We're not particularly concerned about anonymity in Cleveland or Akron, northeastern Ohio. But in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, they were very concerned about anonymity. Matter of fact, the group that I went to was so anonymous, they didn't even want God to know they were in the fellowship. They used to meet in a music store, <clears throat> up over a music store in the downtown area. And they didn't want anyone to know that they were going in, and they would stand in little groups of one and two, perhaps, three at the absolute outside, outside the meeting place, and when the coast was clear, no one was coming, they'd go, three flights up, running. And I can remember my first or second meeting getting up there and thinking, good Lord, this is just like a cheat spot. Yeah, I wasn't altogether sure that I should be there. I felt as though I was going to get picked up any minute by the cop. And after the first or second meeting, someone came up to me and they said, you're new here, aren't you? And I said, yes, my name is Murray Stewart. And he said, ah, no name. But he added, my name is J.C. If you're ever in any trouble, just look me up. I'm in the book. And I know I was a practicing alcoholic, but the idea hit me like a ton of bricks. Look up J.C. in the book. 
And somehow this wasn't the AA that I had read about in the Saturday Evening Post. This isn't the AA that I see today. This is the AA that I was looking at through a practicing alcoholic's eyes, hating every minute of every meeting. You know, I used to sit at those meetings. I'd listen to people get up and tell their stories, and invariably I'd hear the, the real rough stories. You know, guys beating up their wives. I never beat up my wife in my life. I never laid a hand on her. Physically, I'd get... Stories of being thrown in jail and locked up for drunken drugs. This had never happened to me. I never had a DWI in my life. And all of these stories, some some worse than the other. And I'd sit there and I'd measure my degree of, of drunkenness against theirs. And you know, those guys who were telling their stories always came out the losers. They were always far worse than I was. I was so busy trying to measure me against them. And I had the 12 steps on a big placard in the back of the speaker's platform. I used to look at those 12 steps Try to figure out what they meant. That business of, of turning your life and your will over to the care of God as you understand Him. Well, that as you understand Him got to me right away. That was one of my resentments. What do they mean, as you understand Him? There was only one God, but it wasn't anything about as you understand Him. And what is this business of turning your life and your will over to the care of God? How do you do that? No one ever was able to explain that to me very satisfactorily. And this business about came to believe, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I wasn't insane. There was nothing wrong with me. These guys might be nuts, but not me. And of course, there was that business about carry the message to those who still suffer. Uh-uh, Buster, not this guy. There was only one reason for my being in that AA group, and that was to get sobriety myself. And if I got it, I wasn't about to give it away. There was a lot of talk at that time in this particular group. Some of the guys who'd been around 15, 20 years, something like that, used to deliberately spark this argument, I'm sure. They'd say, one of these days, someone's going to invent a pill, and that pill's going to enable the alcoholic to drink normally. Well, if he does it, if this pill comes along, would you, would you take it? And I'd say, well, of course. Of course I'd take it. It'll be ridiculous. Wouldn't you? They'd say, no, no. No, I wouldn't take it. I'd say, why not? And they'd say, because if I did, I might not be able to have this wonderful way of life. And all I could think of was, my name is J.C. Look me up. I'm in the book. Somehow it just didn't ring true. But they told me something else which I didn't really believe. They said, Phil, you say you're an alcoholic. You say you're an alcoholic by the fact that you're here and you're looking for help. Well, if you are an alcoholic, you're never going to be able to drink again. Oh, boy. I mean, how unkind can you be? I used to say to these guys, look, tell me something. How do you go to a movie and not have drinks before and after? How do you have people in for dinner and not serve them martinis and all kinds of little liquid goodies afterwards? How do you do this? How do you get through the 4th of July without getting loaded with the fireworks? And how do you get through the holidays without getting drunk under the Christmas tree or coming down the chimney, ho, ho, ho? 
And no one was ever able to satisfactorily explain this to me. I didn't really believe this business about I'd never be able to drink again. I never believed it. They said, Stuart, what happens to someone who's allergic to strawberries? And I said, if they eat them, they break out in hives. They said, what happens to you if you drink? I said, they get drunk. And they said, no, it goes beyond that. You do more than get drunk. You break out in hives too, mentally and physically. Because once you break out in these so-called hives, you have to keep on drinking. You can't stop. You're a compulsive drinker. You can't stop once you start. And of course, in the back of my mind, I always said, hogwash. What do they mean? It's an amazing thing about that first Alcoholics Anonymous encounter. I was sober. I learned this last night for the first time. I heard my wife. I told you. I learned I was sober eight months. That's the longest I was ever sober in my life. You know, from the time I was born up until I was 12, maybe. But that was my longest period of sobriety. Jan said last night it was the most beautiful marriage during those eight months that we'd ever had. It was just some minutes, just great. And you know, I didn't do one thing to deserve one day of that sobriety. I wasn't sober. I was dry. I was on the periphery of AA. I was not involved. I didn't empty an ashtray. I didn't work in the kitchen. The wives took care of that anyway, you know. They were kind of an AA auxiliary. It was their job to make the coffee and serve the goodies. The AA guys didn't do it. See, I didn't get involved. I didn't do any of this, and yet I stayed sober. And so it's no great surprise as I look back that after eight months of sobriety, I was graduated with honor. I read the big book. I read all those cases. Boy, they did have problems, didn't they? They really had problems. I had these people all figured out. You know, there had to be some of those to make it easy for guys like me. I had to have the horrible, frightening examples. I read the big book. I read all the stuff. I knew the program backward and forward. And so I stopped going to meetings. I knew where to go if I, if I ever needed any help again. Of course, in the back of my mind was that thing which they told me, you'll never be able to drink again, Stuart, and I didn't really believe it. All I had to have was an excuse to find out whether they were right or not. And it came. My mother-in-law came to visit us. <laughs> Gert's a great gal. That's my mother-in-law. Gert's a great gal, but uh, all we had to do was be in the same room ten years ago, and boom! She looked at me, and I looked at her, and her, and it was instant enemy. You didn't even need anything. Just, just the two presences together. Well, no. And Gert came that weekend. I don't know what happened. Some ridiculous type thing. But something happened, and I went right out of the house back to my old watering hole. And, you know, all the way thinking, I'm going to show her. I'm going to show her. You know, I'm going to get drunk. And I walked in, and I sat down at the parade room, and Bob just automatically poured that great, big, fat, double vodka martini and set it down in front of me. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I've got to admit that. It was just gorgeous. He put it down in front of me, and I could look out the window. There's a law in South Dakota, there was at that time, that you couldn't have any draperies or anything on the windows. The windows had to be open so you could see in and they could see out. So I could look right across the street at the AA meeting place, and I could see them over there. The little group, three flights up. And I could look at that martini at the same time and think, you know, I wonder what's going to happen to me. They told me I'll never be able to drink again. And I thought, you know, gee, I wonder, am I going to throw a jerry? What's going to happen? You know, the hand of God could conceivably strike me down dead if I touched that. 
But I drank it. And it was beautiful. See, I don't know about you, but I can remember, you know, it, it went all the way down. I could feel the little capillaries just going like that. Letting the blood go all the way through my veins. And then I could feel it come all the way up again in my brain. Someone always turned a little bulb on in my brain every time I took that first drink. And it was like an incandescent flood that night. And I thought, what do they mean I can't drink again? What do they mean? Look at me, you know, this is beautiful. And it was. It was. I suppose I had half a dozen, you know, at least half a dozen before I left there that night. I walked home, ten feet off the ground, and I thought, never has any man felt so good. The rest has been good for me. Now I am in condition. Hey, it wasn't the next day. It wasn't the next day after that. It wasn't a week. I don't even remember whether it was months. But suddenly one morning, I realized that the past had begun to repeat itself. There I was, taking the first of the bennies for the day, and taking my usual morning drink, a mixture of vodka and metrocal. I have a friend here tonight who christened that thing a, a bloody twiggy, incidentally. <laughs> That's the way I started my day most of these years. You see, I had a kitchen tumbler about so big, and it was about two-thirds filled with vodka, and then just a dollop of metrocal. And the metrocal was to satisfy my conscience, because my wife, as I said, is a dietitian, and she always insisted I had some food in my stomach. That's the reason for the metrocal. But I can remember suddenly standing there looking at myself in the mirror and praying. God, let these bennies go. Let them take effect. Let that drink come. Just waiting and praying that I would be returned to the state which I had left a few hours before, drunken. It was the past all over again. I was walking the same way that I had gone before. It was something like being lost on a carnival midway at midnight, not knowing where I was, what I was doing, a glass in one hand that was never empty in the other arm around one of those merry-go-round horses. Only those horses were fear, and I, I became an intimate friend of fear in those days. Fear of all the unknown things which haunt a man. I remember waking up in the morning and being afraid to move because something was hanging over me and I didn't know what it was. Something bad. I can remember the mail being delivered and afraid to open the envelopes for fear of what would be inside. I was afraid to go into a room because someone might be there. I'm afraid to not go in. I can remember the fear of standing on a street corner watching the traffic light change time after time. Afraid to cross the street. Afraid. And I can remember the hate. My son, our son, died of aplastic anemia, a disease which has been known to be caused by a broad-spectrum antibiotic, chloromycetin. And I was convinced that Christopher had been killed by his pediatrician. 
His pediatrician had five children, one of whom was dying of muscular dystrophy. And he had a wife. And as I lay in my bed at night and as I sat at the bars drinking, I began to realize there was a way that I could get even, a way that I could, I could revenge myself for Christopher's death. And so I made plans to kill the doctor and his wife. And I began to find out where I could buy the dynamite that I would need to blow up his house. And I learned from our engineers at the station how to wire it so that the job would be done and be done effectively. And the night that I was to do it, I had been drinking all day, taking pills all day. And it began to rain. A type of rain that we normally didn't have back in South Dakota, just a drenching downpour, something like a California rain, Southern California rain. And I was so drunk that I was physically and mentally unable to carry out the job that I had set out to do. And so he lived, and I can say today that surely the hand of God was upon me that night to prevent it from happening. But the hatred was and the hatred for myself. Looking in the mirror, seeing this bloated face, the red-rimmed eyes, and in the back of my mind thinking to myself, where are you, Stuart? Where did you go? This is not the man that you were. Where are you? And I couldn't find him. He wasn't there anymore. He was buried in that liquid prison of booze the prison which I had created for myself and couldn't find a way out of. A prison that I wouldn't be able to find myself out of for a number of years when I finally was drawn into Alcoholics Anonymous. And this was the period when I came home from work with the news of a, of a job in Miami, Florida. Job as a newsman at Channel 10 down I'd been offered a job, it was a good job, the money was good. And in this mind of mine, I saw this, this God of mine, to which I had been paying lip service, had finally taken notice. And he said, okay, Stuart, you've had enough here. I'm going to give you a chance to go down. If this was my thinking on the thing, I knew this was right. And I came home to tell my wife that all of our problems would be over, that now we could move, we could leave the past behind us. And that was the day she had chosen to take our daughter and leave and I walked into that house, and any man who has gone into his home and found it empty does not need to be told that his wife has, has left him. The feeling is there. You know that they are gone and that they'll never come back. And I knew it. And I called everyone I could think of to find out where Jan was with the kids, and no one would tell me. And finally, this one woman I had known for so long said to me, and she said the question, she asked the question, which has been asked so many times before, Murray, if it's just booze, if it's just booze that's come between you and Jan, why don't you stop? And I said, my God, Vi, I can't stop. And yet if anyone had said to me, do you love your wife and your children? I would have said more than anything else in this world. I could have put Jan in this hand with the daughters and a bottle of booze in this hand, and I would have had to take the booze because I had no choice. And I remember that night lying in my bed, screaming, screaming. The neighbors must have heard me. My God, what has happened to me? 
And there was no answer. Yet the next morning, I got on a plane. It was 13 degrees below on that January morning, I remember. And a few hours later, I got off the plane in Miami at the International Airport, and it was a beautiful, wonderful, lovely day. And I looked around, and somehow the things which I had left behind didn't seem quite so important. And I straightened out myself mentally, and I looked around with all the, the eye of a prosperous man who had come to take this new television market into his hands. And I thought to myself, isn't it too bad, Jan, you didn't play your cards right? You could have been here with me. I left my wife and my four daughters without a cent of money to their name. I took every penny we had. Utility bills were about to be, the utilities were about to be turned off. House payments hadn't been made in months. And I had insufficient fund checks, bum checks, floating all over that part of the country. And all I could think of was, isn't it too bad? You didn't play your cards right. You could have been here with me. Never a thought, sir. Never a thought. And it was at this point that my wife turned to Alana. I can't tell her story, obviously, nor do I need to. But because she did, we are here tonight. Thank God. Florida was a nightmare. Those months that I was alone, these were the months of stopping after the 11 o'clock news and picking up a couple of bottles of either... Funny Brooker, ten high, taking them back to the room. I used to open the door to my room, and there was no floor there. Suddenly the floor had disappeared, and all there was was some kind of a black hole down there. And I was afraid to move. In the back of my mind, I knew this wasn't true. I knew it couldn't be true. I, I knew that there was a floor there, that there were chairs there to sit in, that there was a bed, that there was a telephone beside the bed. I knew these things were there, but they weren't there. And I'd hang on to that door jam until finally I was able to, to get enough nerve together to go over and sit down. And then, of course, the chairs began to play tricks on me, like moving toward the window, getting ready to throw me out. And I'd sit there with a bottle of booze and break the seal and pour a drink. And this wasn't booze. Someone had done something to it. They'd watered it or something because it didn't taste like anything I'd ever drunk before. And it had no effect on me. As much as I drank, I didn't get drunk. I used to ask the guys at the station the next day, you know, where do you have an honest liquor store around here? Well, they don't water the booze. And they looked at me as though I were crazy. And I was. I was. These were bad months. Bad months. But finally, Jan made the decision to join me, and she brought our four daughters. And as she made her second Al-Anon contact in Miami, I made my second contact with AA. Oh, I, I remember that cocky meeting with the man who was to be my sponsor. We met at the DuPont. We had dinner between the 6 or the 5.30 and the 11 o'clock news. And I said, Dick, I've got an hour or so I can spare, you know. And we talked about AA, and he told me about his years of sobriety and what they meant to him and his, his wife. And he said, these are the things you must do, Murray. And I said, I know. I've been there before, remember? I've read the big book. I've gone to meetings. I know how you do this thing one day at a time. But look, Dick, what I really want is this. Will you, will you help me to get sober so I can keep my wife? I don't want to lose her and the kids again. Will you take me to meetings so that she'll think it's all right and so that I can somehow get all of these things off my back? And Dick agreed to do it. 
And I went to those meetings. And I stopped drinking. But it was a carbon copy of what I had been through before in South Dakota. Sure, I stopped drinking. I didn't take a drink. I stayed dry. Made a marvelous, marvelous discovery, however, after I'd been dry for a number of months. I used to go to a lot of press parties, and there's always a lot of booze at Florida press parties. And I was at one of the hotels on the beach, and a waiter went by with a tray full of martinis, and I found myself on the way to a slip, is what happened. I reached out and grabbed a vodka martini or a martini, and I drank it. And it was beautiful. It, 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 was, it was lovely. And I put it down, and as another waiter sailed by, I reached out and grabbed another one. And I had about half of it gone when I suddenly realized I had to be back at the newsroom to do a taping. And I put that drink down, and I left, and I got into my car and was halfway back to the studio when I suddenly realized what I had done. I had put down an unfinished drink. And this had never happened to me before. As I told you, I was the kind of a guy who went around and cleaned up drinks after others had drunk. But I had knowingly and wittingly put down an unfinished vodka martini. And the thought came to me. Do you suppose... You see, I'd just been reading an article in one of those women's magazines about some British psychologist who'd been treating alcoholics and said that he'd been able to return a certain portion of them to normal drinking. And I thought, do you suppose... Through having read that article, that I have been returned to normal drinking? And the tentative response was, it must be. It must be. Of course, when you've got a problem like that on your hands, and if you are a qualified scientist, there is only one way to find out whether you're right or not. You must run a series of experiments, right? And, of course, I proceeded to do just that. And I found that I could take a couple of drinks and that I could stop. The old compulsion to continue drinking had indeed been removed from me. I no longer had to do these things. I was right. Except for the two times I tried to kill myself. Smashed both times. I remember I was going up towards Fort Lauderdale, and the idea was that I was going to jump the median strip and hit another car head-on. And I figured that would be the best way out of it all. It never occurred to me that there would be someone else driving that other car, that there would be other lives involved. It never occurred to me. This is one of the reasons why I have no difficulty in accepting the second step. But I can remember I got, we had a Chevy convertible, and I got it up to about 95, and it'd be kind of, kind of fishgate or tailgate a little bit, and shimmy very badly. And the thought occurred to me, this is going to be a messy way to go, Stuart. And I chickened out. And a couple of nights later, very upset with myself and very drunk, I went back to the house. Jan was in the hospital with one of the youngsters overnight. I went home, took the babysitter home, and sat out by the pool, took all my clothes off, and proceeded to finish this bottle I had brought home. And I dived in. The idea was that I was going to dive so deeply I'd hit my head and drown. And all I succeeded in doing was scraping my nose and my forehead and giving myself a very bad headache. And I can remember the next morning looking at myself in the mirror and my face was a mess. And all I could think of was, Stuart, you can't even kill yourself. You know, how low can you go? Just a short time later, 
a day or two. I was called into the program director's office, and I should have been very much concerned when he when he said those opening words. He said, Murray, you know the news ratings aren't very good. And we live and die by ratings in my business. Well, I knew the ratings weren't very good, and I proceeded to tell him why the lousy programs that he put on before my news. I couldn't possibly expect me to do the whole thing himself, myself. And we talked, <coughs> excuse me, in this vein for perhaps a half hour, but I left the office, fired. And as I walked out, through my mind was the thought, does he realize he's fired Walter Cronkite? I couldn't even be honest about that. I'll never forget going home that night and telling my wife what had happened. I can remember she put her arms around me and kissed me on the cheek and said, don't worry, something will happen. And something did happen. Suddenly, all the, all the miles of my life fled to northeastern Ohio. I didn't want to come to Cleveland. I wanted no part of it. I wanted to stay in Florida, or I wanted to go back to New York, or I wanted to go to San Francisco or Chicago, any place but Cleveland. And, of course, I came in town on Election Day, and all the bars were closed, and you know what a lousy reputation that gives a city. But I was hired to do the weekend news on the channel for which I now work, and to act three days a week as a field reporter on the street. I've lived my life, my drinking life, in blackouts. They started when I was a youngster, and they continued, and they got worse. And these days of being out on the street were worked in a constant blackout. I, I used to come into the newsroom very early in the morning and be, be sent out on an assignment, and I'd come back a couple of hours later. And I couldn't remember where I'd been or what I'd been doing. And I'd pull out my notebook and study my notes, but I couldn't read the writing. The scribbling was so bad. And I'd have to wait until the film was processed to see who it was that I'd been talking to and what we'd been talking about. As you can imagine, that gets to be pretty hairy sometimes, particularly when you're working against a news deadline. The weekends were worse because we had only an 11 o'clock news on Saturday and Sunday night at that time. And I used to leave the house very early in the morning to get ready. I used to get ready at the Hannah Pub. I used to get ready at the Playhouse. I used to get ready at any other number of likely news source places. By the time 11 o'clock came around, I was ready. Those were probably some of the saddest news shows that had ever gone out over that air. And filled with a great deal of guilt and remorse, realizing what I was doing, how I was jeopardizing my job, I'd wait for Monday morning to come because it was the worst day of the week. I'd have to face my boss after the weekend, and I knew that he always watched those shows. And he'd walk into the newsroom, and that face would be grim and stern and set and suspicious. And I'd think to myself, today I'm going to get it. Today I'm going to get fired. After I'd been in the program a number of months, I found out that he always wore that face on Monday morning. And it was only my guilty conscience that was doing this to me. The road which had begun so long before was nearly at an end. Things were happening faster and faster and faster, and they were all bad things. I mentioned before insufficient fund checks. The first six months I was in Cleveland, five months, 
I was kicked out of two banks for insufficient fund checks. The vice president in charge of bad checks called me into my last one. And he said, Stuart, you may be able to afford to write them, but we can't afford the bookkeeping. Would you please take your business elsewhere? I think the real thing that hurt most at that particular time was putting a, a 5 or a $10 check in the collection plate at church and having that check bombed. <laughs> you know, what do you say to your priest? Gee, Father, I'm sorry. What do you say? But it was all part of the thing, all part of the package, all of it getting worse, worse, and more and more of it. There's a man, those of you who live in the area know him well, but there's a man who works at our station who has had this gift of sobriety for some time, and I knew about Jim and about his program. We went to a Christmas party that first year, some months after we had been here, and I bumped into Jim, and I heard myself say something that was almost unbelievable to me. I said, Jim, I may have a little bit of a drinking problem, and one of these days, I may want to do something about it. And I can remember he said, fine, call me any time. I'll be glad to do what I can. And a couple of days later, I called him. He tells me this. I don't remember it. But he says, I called him and I spoke of trying LSD for a cure. And Jim turned to his wife and said, I don't think he's ready. I was given some booze by some sponsors and I took it home. I hadn't been taking booze home for several years, since Sioux Falls, South Dakota, as a matter of fact, and that was a, a few years back. I hadn't been taking any booze home because I didn't want my wife to know I was drinking. So one of the reasons I was concentrating so heavily on vodka in those days, because as you know, you can't smell vodka. My wife smelled it long distance, but I didn't know that. But I took this booze home, the first I had brought home in a long time. And they speak in the the big book and they speak in the other literature of the, the point of ego deflation of the point of no return the point I guess where where you realize this is it and this was the beginning because that night I sat down and began to drink and I began to talk it's an amazing thing this was one of the most important nights of my life and I remember almost nothing but the next morning, my wife said, do you remember anything? And for an answer, I went to the phone and called the central office. And there was a guy with a funny little accent on the other end of the phone. And he said, do you have a drinking problem? And I said, yes. That's very important, that yes. Very important, because I had never said yes before. Yes, I have a drinking problem. Never had I said that to anyone. Not even to myself. And I can remember he said, do you want someone to come out and talk to you? And I said, please. And a short time later, a matter of minutes, literally, a man walked into my life, and he has since told me that he took one look at me standing there in the kitchen, and he said, God, give me the strength to get through to that arrogant SOB. And we went into my bedroom and sat down and began to talk, and God answered his prayer and mine. And that was the second miracle of that morning. Because here was a man who was so different from me. And yet he found the words that morning to tell me my story. And I sat there literally and listened to him talk. 
And it seemed to me that everything he said was in direct relation to me. He spoke of my financial troubles knowingly. He spoke of the troubles that I was having with my creditors so knowingly. And he told me of what was happening between my wife and myself. And I knew. And suddenly I realized that he wasn't talking about me. He was telling me his story. And it was mine. And I think it was then that hope, real hope, was born. And then I can remember he led me down the years of his sobriety. And he said, Murray, if you will do these things, and he spoke of the 12 steps, he said, if you will do these things, I guarantee you sobriety. I had heard that at every AA meeting I think I had ever gone to. I guarantee you sobriety. But that morning I heard it, and I grabbed at it. I guarantee you sobriety never did anything did any promise ever seem so great to me as that? And I went to the phone then and called Jim and asked him if he would call my boss to tell him that I was going into the hospital. And a few minutes later, the phone rang, and it was the general manager of the station. And I was convinced I was going to be fired. But instead, he said, Murray, I understand you're going to do something about your drinking. I want you to do something for me. You go into that hospital and get well and come home. And come on back to work. You've got a job waiting for you. And he said, if your wife needs any money, just tell her to call me. I'll make sure that she gets it. And I turned away from that phone with tears of gratitude in my eyes. But at the same time, the thought went through my mind, my God, did I give up too soon? I figured I can't be as bad as I thought I was. I've still got a job. My wife can have some money if she needs it. You know, I was telling that story a number of months later after a little bit of sobriety began to set in, and it suddenly occurred to me why, why this had happened. You see, some years before I came to the station, this, this Jim, who had been a practicing alcoholic, was fired. The management had gotten rid of him. They wanted no part of him. He was useless to them, to his family. But after they'd fired him, they watched him to go into Rosary Hall. And they watched him come into Alcoholics Anonymous. And they had watched as out of the ashes of that drunk, a new man was born. A man they admired, respected, and rehired. And that management had sat back and watched over a period of years as this man progressed in his sobriety and in this way of life. And the reasoning that Saturday morning when I made that call was obvious. If Jim can do it, maybe this Cook Stewart can do it as well. That's why I was given the opportunity, because of what Jim had done years before. He had put down a carpet for me to walk on into sobriety. Long before he ever knew I existed, and that's why I say thank God for him. And thank God for all of our gyms who have gone before us to prepare the way of sobriety for the rest of us. And that's how it was that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, admitting that I was powerless over alcohol, that my life had become unmanageable. I had to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. 
And the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him was the only possible decision that I could make. And I suppose it was during those first few days that I began to look at myself for the first time to realize what had happened to me. To see for the first time the grime and the filth and the mire in which I'd been living. And to think of the words of St. Paul when he said, Take off the old man and put on the new. How do you do it? How do you rid yourself of the shame of caging drinks? Because your son has died. How do you rid yourself of the guilt of turning your wife into something that she never was? How do you do these things? How do you repay the errors of omission and commish? How do you do it? Thank God for the men who come to call in the hospital to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God for these men who come to give it away so that they may have it. Thank God for the man who took me aside one night as they were beginning to close up. And he said to me, Stuart, do you believe in God? And I said, I don't know. I was trying to be honest. I don't know whether I believe in God or not. I paid lip service to him long enough. And he said, look, I want to tell you something. He said, it was given to me a number of years ago and it's worked, but let me pass it on to you. He said, I was told that before I left for work in the morning, I was to get away by myself. Go into the bathroom, he said. Lock the door so no one can come in. And he said, don't be ashamed, but get down on your knees and say, help me. Help me, God, to not drink today, just this day, that's all. And he said, take that with you in belief. Act it out that day as though you knew he had heard and promised he would. Act it out. And he said, if things get tough, stop. And think to yourself, okay, I'm not going to take that drink right now. I'll wait for 15 minutes and then I'll take it. Then it'll be all right. And when that 15 minutes comes, he said, extend it a little bit more. And he said, you'll come to the end of a day and you'll think to yourself, my God, I have not had a drink today. This is what he told me. And it has worked. One day at a time. I did it this morning. I did it the morning before that. And I will do it again tomorrow. Please, God, help me to not think today. And help me to do those things which you would have me do. And give me the strength to do them. You know, the problem of staying sober is a very simple problem in the hospital. You've got all the facilities in the world to stop you. But you're not going to spend the rest of your life in the hospital. How are you going to cope with this idea of not taking a drink once you leave the ward? Once you begin to meet up with your old buddies again, how are you going to do that thing? And someone passed on words of Sister Ignatia. And she was talking about involvement. And she said, just remember... That the problem that lies ahead of you isn't anywhere near as great as the power that lies behind you. I bought that. And sister passed on something else, too. She said, God is a lot more interested in what you do on your feet than what you say on your knees. Get involved. And I came out of the hospital and began a 
A series of meetings, night after night, every night of the week, and I had two wonderful sponsors who saw to it that my wife and I went to these meetings, that we heard people with, with some tenure and of sobriety in the fellowship, and we began to learn and to listen. I used to sit there and I, I would hear men speak of things that six months before I would have gotten sick about. Because they were talking of things like honesty and unselfishness and love and purity. And I didn't get sick. I believed them. I believed it when they were talking of these intangible things. And it was an amazing thing to me because I knew that here were the same men and women who, until a short time before, in terms of years, had lain in the drunken arms of death until A.A. came by and touched them and said, stand up and live and be one with us. I believed it. And I wanted it. I wanted it so badly I could taste it. No one had cared for Stuart. No one had ever cared for Stuart. I had no friends. I wanted no friends. And I can remember I was taken to a meeting at a place called King's School down in Akron, and I had never been there before. I've been in the program only a few weeks. And I met a man that night who had been in this fellowship right from the beginning. And we met and we talked. And I was tremendously impressed by the fact that he had 30 years of sobriety, and I thought, this isn't possible. This is impossible that anyone can go that long, but I was impressed by his gentleness and his understanding. And a few days later, I was in the newsroom, and the telephone rang, and it was my sponsor. And he said, Murray, I just want to tell you that Warren called from Canton, and he wanted to know how you were doing. And I couldn't believe it. Here was a man who had made a long-distance telephone call to find out if I was sober and if I was all right. And how I was going forward in the fellowship. And I thought, someone cares. And a short time later, at my original home group at Southwest Sunday in Berea, they said, Stuart, how would you like to do uh, kitchen duty next month? And I nodded numbly and said, yeah, sure. And that night, I cried into my pillow. I'm a slob. But I cried into my pillow to think that someone had put enough faith into me to ask me to do kitchen duty for a month but it was the beginning of our involvement. And I can remember being at a meeting on the far west side of Cleveland, and they recognized me from that bloody tube. And someone said, will you lead our meeting? And I said, absolutely not. I haven't been around long enough. I'm a phony. I wouldn't know what to say. But I said, ask me in six months. And they made the mistake of asking me in six months, and I said, yes, I will. And the date was set. And the date that it was to be... I came home from work and found my wife ready to go, and one of my sponsors ready to drive us over to this meeting. And I stood there that night, and I... It was like taking my clothes off in public. But I made that first talk, and I was hooked. And my wife told me later that when they had asked me to leave, and I had agreed to, that in the back of her mind she knew that come that day I would be the victim of some strange and rare tropical malady and I would not be able to attend. And she knew that if this were so, Alcoholics Anonymous would again have hit the dust along with Brother Stewart. But it came about. And through the grace of God, I'm here. 
I spoke of I spoke of resentments and the fact that I have so much trouble with resentments. One of one of the one of the basic troubles I have in this fellowship is resentment. You know, I have five daughters. I resented the fact that I had five daughters because after all this God of mine had taken away my only son. And what had he given me in with you know, what do you do with five broads, I used to say? You know, a basketball team, what else? And with these five little girls. And I resented them. And I used to get drunk because of them. They were a beautiful excuse to get drunk. I have begun to know these children. And there's something else to them. But two years ago, my wife and I had just come back from the first real sober vacation we had ever taken. And we found that she was pregnant. And a few months later, our seventh child and our only living son was born. And his name is Peter Blaze. And it's good to have another man around the house. I used to think I was living in a convent with a Virgin Mary in residence. I took the two oldest girls to their first AA meeting just three or four weeks ago. I spoke at a Memorial Day breakfast. And for the first time, they saw their father not as a father, but as a man, stripped of all pretense, showing, hopefully, something of honesty. And the change in those two girls in the last four weeks has been a very subtle change, but my one daughter, who is 12, almost 12, told my wife the other night when a friend of hers called her and asked her to go out and play, she said, no. My father's been working, and I haven't seen much of him lately. I think I'll stay home and talk to him tonight. She isn't that good. Isn't that good? And it's all because of Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak of benefits. Benefits. These are my benefits. You. I never had friends before. I could never sit down and talk to people before. But now I can. I am not alone. It is God's gift, this fellowship. And I'm grateful for it. I do what I can, when I can, where I can, as often as I can. And I have yet to find a task that is too difficult to do to merit what has been given me through this fellowship. I mentioned the Hound of Heaven, the story of the man running, and I was like the man in that poem. I fled him down the nights and down the days, down the arches of the years and down the labyrinth and ways of my own mind, and finally I turned and saw his face, the face that I see at every AA meeting, your face. Thank you very much for asking me here.